literally criminals run the government and they make their criminality legal because they are the government and the government can make anything legal or illegal by the stroke of a pen. So they do that. Hey, our criminal activity is legal. That is literally what is happening. It is a gang of criminals. Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. Joining me today is one of my favorite guests to have on the show, and that is James Corbett, here to discuss something that I think is on all of our minds today. We know that the U.S. government armed Osama bin Laden. We know that they armed Saddam Hussein, gave him chemical weapons to be used against Iran in the 1980s. They armed the very groups that later became ISIS. These are things that we should know if you're actually doing your research, and a lot more than that. Yet we're sold an entirely different yarn by the U.S. government and its lapdog mainstream media. So I invited James on today, someone who I think is one of the best sources to talk about this topic, to discuss the real origins of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all of it, how it all comes together. So thank you for joining me today, James. Thank you for having me on to talk about a very important subject. And and definitely, I think it's one that has become increasingly more relevant, interestingly enough, as this has gone forward. And I wouldn't say necessarily because their propaganda is working, but more so because we're chipping away at it more than ever. And it's an interesting time to begin to see things that, you know, they've lied to us about for so long. So the the best place to start here, as I think generally most people seem to be aware aware of, of course, you know, we have a clip of Hillary Clinton saying this in front of Congress, but the, the origins of where this all comes from, and many may not know that ISIS ties back to Al-Qaeda, which ties back to the Mujahideen. So the U.S. government in Afghanistan armed the Mujahideen against the Soviet Union, which later became Al-Qaeda. So could you touch on that idea for me and, and, and tell me whether or not that actually is the beginning of all this? Yeah, I, I forget the exact clip of uh, Clinton that you're referring to, but it's something like... We had this brilliant idea that we were going to come to Pakistan and create a force of Mujahideen, equip them with Stinger missiles and everything else to go after the Soviets inside Afghanistan. And then we said, great, goodbye, leaving these trained people who were fanatical in Afghanistan and Pakistan, leaving them well armed. I mean, let's remember here... The people we are fighting today, we funded 20 years ago. This ultimately does have its origins, its direct historical origins in, you could trace it back to Operation Cyclone in 1979, where the U.S. covertly supported at that time the Afghan, uh, the Afghanis, quote unquote, against the Soviets, and uh, which led, of course, to Soviet involvement in Afghanistan, the Soviet-Afghan War, which was uh, Hollywoodized in, uh, uh, what was that called? You know the name of the movie? Charlie Wilson's War. Charlie Wilson's War. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. And I did talk about that on my program before, which of course covers up the real story of what was really going on there and all of the uh, mil- express military aid, equipment, training, etc. that was going on, not just for the Afghanis, which of course is the way that it's portrayed, but of course to the uh, Arab Afghans, as they were called, which were the foreign freedom fighters in Afghanistan, which included the Saudis and, of course, Osama bin Laden, who was working hand-in-glove with the CIA at that time in the 1980s. And that leads into all sorts of different nooks and crannies and rabbit holes, like the Al-Kifa Refugee Center in Brooklyn, I believe it was, and the people that were being flown from, uh, from Afghanistan into the U.S. for training and 
flown back out with, of course, U.S. government cooperation, which was whistleblown by people like Michael Springman, who was working at the Jeddah Consulate, where, oh, by the way, 12 of the uh, visas for the 9-11 quote-unquote hijackers were issued and all of that. Again, there's rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole, but long story short, which I think is fairly common wisdom at this point, yes, the uh, Osama bin Laden and what ultimately became Al-Qaeda was the CIA's golden boys in Afghanistan, and they were being equipped and trained and supplied and funded um, by the U.S. government. Weird. It's almost as if it's all connected, James. It's interesting. Yeah, it is. It, it is, isn't it? It's very strange. And, and then we can trace various historical lines from that. And I wouldn't even call that the genesis. That was just the, that at that time, the latest instantiation of a trick that had been going on for a very long time using Islamic radicalist or radicalism and radicals as a basically a, a force in the region to try to topple various governments or or interfere in in that case it was with the Soviet Union and all of that but blah 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 long story short using these various movements to try to uh, enact certain geopolitical goals which the US and its proxies had in the region before that it was the British doing the same thing so it's a very long tradition of, uh, of that, uh, that goes back to the Muslim Brotherhood and all of that. Um, again, so it's very, very long, but we can try tie the direct historical ties from say Afghanistan and Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda, um, moving into say Libya. Let's just move to the Libyan invasion back in 2011, um, where of course the freedom love bombs were dropping down and uh, liberating that country, which now has of course open air slave markets and all of that, but who cares? That's yesterday's news. We used to care about Libya for a few months for some reason, but then we don't, and let's never question why. Um, now, at that time, shortly after the collapse of Libya, it was being reported that, hey, a lot of these Libyan Islamic fighting group, LIFG fighters and other um, Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups, their fighters were being suddenly ending up in Syria. And how is this happening? And uh, people with... Uh, close relations to, to various, uh, the, the LIFG leader, um, were literally recruiting terrorists there in Syria and leading that, spearheading that. Um, again, that was mainstream news. Um, the Washington Institute, CNN, Time, they were all covering it at that time in, in June, July 2012. Hey, there's suddenly there's all these Islamic fighters ending up in Syria. How's that happening? Um, and then we know that uh, in 2012, also the Pentagon was on the record helping to start funding, training uh, some of the radicals, uh, the, the moderates, I'm sorry, I forgot the right terminology, it's the moderates who are being shipped into Syria to help overthrow Assad. Um, then we can extend that out to 2013 when it was uh, officially made official with uh, Barack Obama signing on the dotted line for Operation Timber Sycamore, which officially uh, greenlighted the CIA to in get involved itself in uh, arms running into Syria um, with the Saudi involvement. That was specifically the Operation Timber Sycamore. We know that there's a deeper story behind that. It ties back to Benghazi, for example, which was a diplomatic mission in Benghazi that was a mile away from a CIA annex, which they weren't allowed to talk about, which Paula Broadwell, you'll remember the, the broad 
involved in the uh, takedown of uh, Petraeus, um, she said that, yeah, they were running an illegal CIA black site there at that CIA annex. Now, I don't know if a lot of you have heard this, but the CIA annex had actually um, had taken a couple of Libyan militia members prisoner, and, and they think that the attack on the consulate was an effort to try to get these prisoners back. So and that's why they couldn't even acknowledge its existence until it kind of came out during the Benghazi hearings, and they spun it off into left-right political nonsense when it was all about what, what was the CIA annex doing there? And why were these CIA people involved in what was happening in this gunfight? And was it about some video that had been posted to YouTube? No, it was not about that. What was this really about? Oh, it was about gun running operation that was going from Benghazi uh, ultimately to Syria through Turkey, through Jordan, through uh, other proxies in the region, um, which has now come out in documents that were, came out in 2015. Long story short, I mean, there's no end of evidence that what has happened in Syria has been a deliberate, carefully crafted strategy of funding and arming terrorists to go against someone who is on the U.S. State Department's hit list. Big surprise. Wow. I mean, who would have ever thought that? And again, this is not difficult to see when we get the, uh, the leaked or the revealed document from the Defense Intelligence Agency was writing in 2012 saying, hey, look, they want to establish this Islamic uh, caliphate in, in eastern Syria, western Iraq, and we're arming the people who are going to do this. This is, this is going to create an Islamic state. And then in 2014, the convoy starts a rolling and takes over Mosul and other areas uh, there, and the, the rest is history. So ISIS and its origins is of course not something that is ever delved too deeply into in the mainstream conversation, at least not at this point. Now it's just taken as a given. These fighters arose out of the sands of Syria somehow, and let's never penetrate beyond even the first veil of that to the reporting that, again, has already been done by the New York Times and others, CIA, Operation Timber Sycamore. All of this is totally public record. Nothing whatsoever conspiratorial about it, but we're not allowed to think about it. And this culminates actually in what I think is, I still go back to this as one of the craziest, funniest, but not ha-ha funny things I've ever seen. Um, I, and I will put this in the show notes when I post this at uh, corporatereport.com. I hope you'll do so for your listeners as well. In 2015, March 2015, Barrick Mendelson wrote an article for Foreign Affairs, which is the mouthpiece of the Council on Foreign Relations, which of course is the sister organization to the Royal Institute of International Affairs there in England. Um, and that title, uh, again, ex of that article, Accepting Al-Qaeda, the Enemy of the United States Enemy. And the, the argument is literally what we already know, but it's amazing to see it in black and white there on Foreign Affairs, um, where they literally argue, well, today, Al-Qaeda, although still a grave threat, is only one of several emanating from the Middle East. Washington must not only contain Iran's hegemonic aspirations, of course, uh, which threaten U.S. allies, but also fight ISIS expansion. So they're literally saying, well, look, ISIS, therefore, well, we kind of got to help Al-Qaeda. I guess they're kind of the good guys again. Okay. And so literally 14 years after 9-11, in the pages of foreign affairs, they're saying, yeah, well, you know, you kind of got to help. Al-Qaeda. So even if you were to swallow the whole 9-11 story hook, line, and sinker, they're literally saying, yeah, well, we're going to use whatever terrorist organization we want, including the ones that we are blaming for this, you know, horrific event that's justified everything that's happened in the last two decades. We're going to be on their side now because they're against the bad guys. And, and it's pretty clear that the media plays a major role in facilitating, I would say, probably the, the most important role in maintaining that illusion. You mentioned the, the discussion of the media talking about the, the sending of rebels from Libya. 
So it's interesting we can see that, which ends up being reality. But what would you argue in that case versus what we're seeing now? Was that some part of another PSYOP or were they actually being honest? Or how do you take that? Well, it's funny that you mentioned media and PSYOPs when it comes to this, because this is one of those neglected aspects of the ISIS origin story that, again, is there if you dig into it. But you have to do a bit of digging at this point because it has been firmly covered up, even though it is still out there in black and white. And I'm referring specifically to a point that I did make in my recent um, podcast, Something Big Has Happened, where I dissected the, 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 this, the retirement party for the latest you know, boogeyman of, of the week, um, Abu Omar al-Baghdadi? No, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Sorry, I get my Baghdadis confused. Um, where I pointed out uh, back in episode 295 of my podcast several years ago when ISIS, the ISIS crisis first began, I did a podcast called Who is Really Behind ISIS? And I broke down at that time the historical origins of ISIS and its first uh, leader and its second leader and the, the craziness behind them. And just, of course, like Bakr al-Baghdadi, these these fighters too had had several times where they were reported captured and then recaptured and then killed and then captured again and then killed again and killed again. And I go through that in great detail. But the point that I found most interesting about both of the previous leaders of what eventually became ISIS, and as I also point out in episode 295, what's in the name? We say ISIS, Islamic State of uh, uh, Iraq and Syria, but it's also Islamic State of Iraq and Levant and it's also, I mean, 18,000 different designations that it's gone by over the years with all sorts of different uh, English abbreviations, English tr uh, abbreviations of the English translations of these different names. So it, the, the name really means nothing whatsoever. I, I know that the first level of conspiracy analysis is ISIS means is, uh, Israel State Intelligence Service. Case closed, guys. Move on. <laughs> That's the uh, full amount of research you need to do, right? I mean, it's yeah. just, it's nonsense. But um, when you actually start to piece the, the story together, the officially on-the-record story, you, you go back eventually to Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who was a Jordanian dissident terrorist, who in 1999 formed an organization that, um, I won't butcher the Arabic name, but the, the abbreviation was JTJ, um, the Organization for Monotheism and Jihad, I believe, uh, was the English translation at the time, which is the organization that kind of eventually morphed into what we now know as ISIS. And that, that's a fascinating story in and of itself, but the, the really, the cherry on top of that story um, came out, again, reported completely out in the open, Washington Post, other places I'm sure talked about it, but I, I go back to the Washington Post article from April 10th, 2006, military plays up role of Zarqawi. And it's all about uh, documents that they had obtained and uh, off-the-record interviews they'd had with people involved in the program, talking about a PSYOP program um, that was specifically designed by the Pentagon in order to play up the role of Zarqawi in Iraq and the things that his group, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Islamic State eventually, what they were doing in order to make them seem more important than they were. And the justification that was being given on this, the gloss that was uh, being given at that time was that well, we need to play up the foreign involvement in what's happening in Iraq so that people in Iraq will see that it isn't Iraqis who are resisting the U.S. It's these foreigners, and they'll fight with each other. It was essentially to stir up a lot of Shia-Sunni animus because, of course, a lot of the things that were going on at the time, like the Golden Mosque bombing, was being blamed on these kinds of foreign fighter groups, like, look at this, Zarqawi. And you have people, I mean, you have all sorts of 
things in this article that are just mind-blowing. I hope people will go and read it. Again, it's called Military Plays Up, Role of Zarqawi. But they're, they're specifically talking about how they literally were trying to make him seem more important than he was. And it culminates by saying that um, this was a PSYOP program. It was uh, talked about in numerous military documents entitled such things as villainize Zarqawi slash leverage xenophobia response, uh, as well as um, listed under media operations, special ops 626, which was a uh, reference to task force 626, which was the US military unit that was assigned to hunting down uh, old uh, Hussein government operatives uh, or, or officials uh, in Iraq, and PSYOP, literally, the US military term, of course, for psychological operations. Now, at that time, in that article, they're saying um, that one of the targets for this PSYOP, of course, was the American public. So that the American public believes that there is this Al-Qaeda in Iraq threat that is a big threat in Iraq and the existential reason and the reason why we still have to be there at that time, three years after the invasion and occupation. Now we're going on, what, 16 years and it's still happening and still essentially with the same justification. Look, there's this boogeyman. Um, and they admitted at that time in those documents, it was a psyop to make this person seem more important than he was. If I um, can interject real quick, I just think this is very interesting. Th this, this time, I keep pointing this out, that we're at a time <coughs> now where, as you know, there, there's so many lies and psyops and deceptions and manipulations. And this is what I keep saying, that this is what you begin to see when all you do is lie about something. You can't yeah. tell another story without stepping on a previous lie. And that's why I feel we're starting to see this so much. And I actually had that was one of my earlier point. The questions was about Zarqawi. And I find it very, you know, so, so we're watching as they will sell you, as you explained, which was the question that, you know, so they're doing this to sell you on the lie then that it's more important to make it seem like there's a foreign asset or outside presence. But fast forward to today, now they're selling you on the idea that these people are you know, basically the exact opposite. So it's just very interesting people to reflect on that. And they'll swear up and down as we can prove that article you're showing that that's not the case today, but they admitted it in the Washington Post. I mean, it's just- And, it's and keep in mind, this is uh, seven years before the official appeal of the Smith-Munt Act, which of course officially made it illegal for any psychological operations program to be aimed at the American public. Obviously, that's out the window now, but at that time, that was still pertaining, and they were saying this was one of the main target audiences for this was the American public. Well, that was a flat-out blatantly illegal, but oddly enough, that, that story just you know, went and away. That, never that also, heard about it again. That also reminds me of what I mentioned yesterday about what Ron Paul always points out, and we have to see how often this happens, that what basically they'll have a problem they present us with and they sell us with something, you know, like the War Powers Act or, you know, that ultimately ends up writing into law their ability to do the very thing they say they're fighting. And that's exactly yep. what happened yep. here. Smith Modernization Act. Exactly. So now we can pretend we're doing, you know, it's, it's, exactly. It's and clear. exactly like illegal wiretapping, they just yep. eventually wrote the law that said, actually, that was all okay and will re retroactively give immunity to all the telecommunications companies that illegally spied on you with our urging, of course. So, um, yeah, of course, the criminals. It is literally, this is not a metaphor, this is not a joke. Literally, criminals run the government and they make their criminality legal because they are the government and the government can make anything legal or illegal by the stroke of a pen. So they do that. Hey, our criminal activity is legal. That is literally what is happening. It is a gang of criminals. <sighs> but let's move on to the next stage of the PSYOP because of course, Zarqawi was written out of the picture. He was killed for the final time. Uh, I believe 2005, and of course, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, whatever they were calling themselves that week, was taken over by the 
the first of the two Baghdadis, Abu Omar al-Baghdadi. And of course, literally, I mean, it's not a joke. These names are made up names. I mean, uh, they are non de guerre, um, names that are adopted um, by these people in order to, in this case, specifically to highlight, no, I'm Iraqi, I'm not a foreigner, I'm al-Baghdadi. I'm literally the you know, Baghdadi. Um, so, uh, but regarding Abu Omar al-Baghdadi, who was Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's predecessor, 2007, July 18th, 2007, Reuters, of all places, comes out with this report. Senior Qaeda figure, a senior Qaeda figure in Iraq, a myth, U.S. military. And it says a senior operative for Al-Qaeda in Iraq who was caught this month has told his U.S. military interrogators a prominent Al-Qaeda-led group is just a front and its leader fictitious, a military spokesman said on Wednesday. Uh, Brigadier General Kevin Bergner told a news conference that Abu Omar al-Baghdadi, leader of the self-styled Islamic State of Iraq, which was purportedly set up last year, did not exist. The Islamic State of Iraq was established to put an Iraqi face on what is a foreign-driven network, Bergner said. The name Baghdadi means the person hails from the Iraqi capital. Um, and it goes on to say, essentially, this is a front organization with a fictitious leader. And again, find any coverage of the Islamic State that mentions this part of the story. And then you get into Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who, of course, was just recently retired. And his crazy story, which includes, I, I believe, uh, does Wikipedia call it a semi, semi-authorized or semi-official biography? Which is the only thing we know about him was this bi biography that was online from what source exactly? How? Who, who's vindicating? But anyway, that's the only thing we know about this person. There were only like two or three photographs in existence of this person, uh, who is apparently, you know, the leader of this big terrorist organization, who the U.S., of course, did capture back during the Iraqi uh, uh, occupation and uh, back in 2004, he was being held at Camp Bukha. Um, the person who was in charge of Camp Bukha when that camp was handed back over to Iraqi control in 2009 swears, insists that Baghdadi was still there at that time. He remembers him because he remembers this particular prisoner saying, I'll see you in New York or something similar. When, when uh, he was confronted by journalists saying, no, 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 the US government says they released him in 2004. He insisted, he swore, no, this guy was there in 2009. So even, even something as basic as when he was at Camp Buka and when he was released is not we still don't even have any definitive answer about that. But at any rate, again, like I pointed out in my recent episode, killed, captured, arrested, captured, poisoned, killed, killed again, captured again, and finally killed. And trust us, guys, it was a raid. And I know you went over it on your program. Right. But and here's his underwear. We know for sure, right? <laughs> the briefing that they gave was just it was nonsense. Farcical. But so <laughs> how did they sell this? So, so we're coming from Zarqawi to Baghdadi to Baghdadi to, and then along the way, admitting that these are psyops and fake names. And then suddenly this one's real. Like, do you, I mean, is there any more explanation or they just went with it and hope we weren't paying attention? I, I honestly believe at this point that this propaganda isn't even meant to be persuasive. It isn't meant to convince anyone who actually is following the story or actually reading into these things. It is only meant for the lowest level of people who tune into CNN on the background for 30 minutes and think they are informed about what's happening in the world and people who are only reading headlines. And it is remarkably effective in that sense because Literally, a story that was reported last week may as well have never existed by the way that the 24-7 news cycle functions. 
so that, I, again, I can go and point out these specific cases. It was a psyop. It was a, it was a fictitious front organization with a fake character leading it and all of these things, admissions in mainstream sources. No one will know. Uh, yeah, literally, the Libyan Benghazi weapons running, yeah, uh, you know, it turns out, yeah, there was a weapons running organ uh, operation going on there, and yeah, they were shipping fighters over there, and yeah, they're Al-Qaeda connected, but it's all good. All black and white, all 100% historically verifiable, but again, you know, it might as well have never happened because it was reported a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, or a few years ago, and unfortunately, that's the way it works, and it's exactly that that I think is the explains the point that we've arrived at now where I guess the justification is they're there obviously to fight ISIS but since they're there they might as well take the oil and yeah it is illegal of course no one's saying that what what's happening with regards to protecting the oil and all of that is legal I mean of course to to be on Syrian soil without the invite of the Syrian government and say we're going to stop Syrians from using this oil I mean there's just no there's not even a theoretical justification for this but again, does it matter? You have a, a, a spokesman for the Pentagon or the State Department saying, yeah, that's what we're doing. And what's going to happen? What is going to happen when the criminals literally are running the system? Yeah, which I agree, which is definitely right now. Well, let, let's, let's jump over to, to what I think, at least at, on the basic explanation, that where ISIS ultimately be, gained its uh, ability to do what it does, right? And this is like the, or the Iraq invasion, at least as, as I understand it, that was... Also in 2003, which, interesting, the same year that Zarqawi founded ISIS, right? Odd, almost as if they're connected, right? It's like all, all these things tied in together. But the U.S. invasion, as we understand it, and, and we know, destroyed the government of Iraq. Killed Saddam Hussein, who they previously worked with. Destroyed the infrastructure, which is ridiculous when you're liberating the people. You just destroy everything that they have. And they created what we talk about today as a power vacuum which was entirely created by the U.S. invasion. Now, I wanted your thoughts on this because today I find it very interesting they're trying to sell us on this lie about a power vacuum in Syria when it's pretty damn obvious that both Syria, Russia, any, many people are chomping at the bit to take that territory, right? But in the case of Iraq, I would say that's a legitimate case of a power vacuum where they remove the government and just let it open for whoever wanted to come in. Now, what do you think that, do you think this was an intentional effort to create that vacuum, to create ISIS, or was this just their bumbling effort in Iraq? You know, how do you see it? Yeah, I don't know how many steps ahead in the chess game um, there were in sense of, in the sense of deliberately creating ISIS by invading Iraq, but certainly the power vacuum and the inevitable response to that power vacuum was foreseen and presumably wanted by the people who were really pushing for these invasions. Um, one example of which, of course, when the Ba'athist government was removed from Iraq, who was going to gain the most from that was, of course, the Sunnis. And of course, the Sunnis started to take, I'm sorry, the Shia. And the Shia started to take a more prominent role in Iraq, um, which was perfectly, absolutely predicted. But of course, that means Iran is gaining a foothold in Iraq and gaining presence and gaining, oh, well, now Iran's the big boogeyman. So now we got to focus everything against Iran. And you see how it's literally just, if you just play one step ahead of the chess game, well, we invade Iraq, what's going to happen? Well, Iran's going to grow in power. So, well, uh, then we have to check Iran. And, and literally, of course, this ties back to uh, Wesley Clark and the seven countries in five years plan, which if you wanted to create such an agenda to take down seven countries in five years, which of course didn't happen, but 
we see the countries going off the list, maybe it takes a bit longer, but they're going down one by one, or at least attempting to. Um, if you wanted to do that, you would do that precisely by starting the dominoes falling. How do you start the dominoes falling? You topple one government and you work from there, the chaos that that creates. Now, interestingly, of course, this does go back specifically to planning documents that have been around for decades, going back at least to the early 1980s with the Oded Yunon plan, which was written about at that time by um, Israeli Zionists who wanted to create destabilization in the region to keep Israel's enemies fighting with each other, like Sunni Shia, keeping them divided across sectarian lines, ethnic lines, national lines, whatever, as long as they're fighting with each other, which of course is exactly what has happened in Syria, um, exactly as was written about in the Oded Yunon plan originally. Uh, one of the plans for Syria was to ultimately start to uh, uh, take more of that land for a greater Israel, which was envisioned at the time, but also, of course, to topple the, uh, the government that was in play there in the 1980s when the document was written in order to get sectarian fighting going. Well, mission accomplished there, right? I mean, uh, so the chaos is clearly part of the plan. Whether that specifically was meant to give rise to something called the Islamic State or something like that, I, I don't know how many steps ahead they were with regards to that, but that something along those lines would happen perfectly predictable. And again, as I say, this is part of a strategy that's been going back at least a century in the region to support radical Islamic groups in order to topple, sec uh, topple secular governments or secular leaning governments or governments that weren't completely Islamically radicalized. Um, because it's, it's easier to control a bunch of Islamic radicals because you control the funding, you control the equipment, the arms, the training, the logistics to create an organization that can take over half of Iraq and Syria. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't just spontaneously rise out of the sands. It's not to say that there aren't real terrorists in the sense. There are real people who are really motivated by these religious ideologies and who really fight and die and kill for these religious ideologies. But they are puppets on a string. Um, strings that they may not even be aware of, but they're, the money and the training and the funds and the logistics, all of this does not just come from nowhere. It is provided to them, as has been shown time and time again throughout this entire Syria debacle, from Operation Timber Sycamore to all the other various operations that have been run, including, of course, the training base that was a uh, secret U.S. training base that was uh, set up in Jordan uh, by 2012. I remember port reporting on it in 2012. It finally came out in 2013. Oh, you know, oh, who knew? There was this U.S. secret base that uh, they've been training the people who went on to found ISIS. I mean, wow, what a, how did that happen? Um, so th this is the perfect example of this strategy. But as I say, it's a strategy that stretches back decades and decades and decades. And it's important to recognize always that, you know, correlation is not causation, but that to recognize how many things correlate. Like I keep pointing out that every single time they go around, they claim they're fighting these extremists. They're fighting against these le extremist religious leaders and end up creating the very thing that they claim that they're fighting in every single location they've done this. So they're either really bad at what they're trying to do or that was the plan all along. And I think yeah, that's something we have exactly. to Exactly. And this is where we run up, bump up into the limits of the blowback thesis, which on a surface level makes sense. Oh, they did this and the blowback is you know coming the other way. Who would have thought it? And perhaps that thesis has some merit the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time, the 28th time that happens, it's not really a surprise anymore, is it? It's almost like that is part of the calculation. So either we expect that the military planners are literally the most incompetent drooling boobs who have ever existed on the face of the planet, 
idiots who can't tie their own shoelaces, or this is part of the plan. And I guess I'll leave it to the listeners out there to decide for themselves which they think is more or, likely. Or we can just say it's a little both, right? <laughs> but, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm not saying there are mega mind super strategists who control everything that ever happens on the planet, um, but you don't need to be that advanced. This is a very well-established pattern that has happened, and it doesn't take an Einstein to figure out what we're... Insert a genius, Tesla, sorry. I'm sure I <laughs> triggered half the audience. It doesn't take a Tesla to figure out what's going to happen next. Well, so let, let's let's keep moving down the, the line here. And ultimately, this it, from where we were talking about the invasion of Iraq. And we ultimately know that at 2009 generally is when they moved, or I would say were moved to Syria. And that's one thing I would you know want your take on, whether you think that that was a, you know, they lost control of their proxy or never had control or, you know, what happened and why they went to Syria. I mean, do you think it was due to meddling in Syria from the U.S. before they claimed it was happening or some orchestrated U.S. plan? You know, what ultimately do you see? Why did they end up going into Syria in your, in your mind? Um, I think one, one handle onto that story starts actually before 2009. I think we can go back at least to 2006, where we now know from leaked documents that the U.S. State Department was funding the Syrian opposition going back to 2006. So we have that in black and white documented. Um, the question of why, when, and how that happened uh, at least one answer to that, or at least one part of the answer, comes from Seymour Hirsch, who I am not always on uh, the same level with, but he does occasionally put together some good reports, and there's always at least some meat in with regards to his reporting. And certainly in uh, February 2007, he wrote an article for The New Yorker called The Redirection, which I think goes some way towards explaining what was happening at that time. Um, it says, is the administration's new policy benefiting our enemies in the war on terrorism is the subhead. And that gives you a, a gist of the flavor. Again, questions of motivation and what's really happening, et cetera, are maybe at a deeper level of the conversation. But at any rate, this is the level that could be reported, at least at that time. Uh, he, he writes, in the past few months, as the situation in Iraq has deteriorated, the Bush administration, in both its public diplomacy and its covert operations, has significantly shifted its Middle East strategy. The redirection, as some inside the White House has called the new strategy, has brought the United States closer to an open confrontation with Iran and, in parts of the region, propelled it into a widening sectarian conflict between Shiite and Sunni Muslims. So again, this is part uh, exactly of that agenda of destabilization and chaos and the power vacuum and all of that that we were talking about just a few minutes ago. This was at least being reported on at the time in 2007, noticed that there was a redirection happening as some people in the administration were even calling it, taking it away from specifically focusing on Iraq towards the greater, the greater uh, agenda for the Middle East generally. And, and what, is, uh, what is the US's role and how do we keep the destabilization going, essentially? Um, if you look at it from that lens, these things start to actually make sense. Whereas if you look at it from, oh, it's just the bumbling Uncle Sam who's doing his best to try to keep peace in the region or something, then it doesn't, none of this makes sense. But when you start to see, oh, if the, the agenda is chaos and destabilization, mission accomplished, could not have done a better job, right? Exactly, exactly. And then, and then this is where we get into the discussion of when the United States started sending weapons. As I understand it, uh, June 2013, a general, for, this is what I find so interesting, of the FSA, right, which we now being called the NSA, as if there's some totally different group uh, working, you know, on the Turkey side that the media is now calling extremists while they were, you know, the darlings of them back then. But they, this general spoke out on Al Jazeera and said that basically as a call to the world, if foreign powers do not send weapons, 
that they would lose the fight against Assad in one month, which I find interesting that it was always ultimately about taking out Assad and taking over Syria, despite all the claims, right? And then, of course, Obama, as we, you mentioned, started funding, arming, and training the FSA, which I think is pretty easy to call terrorists, at least extremists. So did the Saudis, Jordan, Qatar, Turkey, and Israel. And I think, as Ben Swan pointed out in his uh, documentary about this, he said, why did the U.S. government send $500 million to the FSA to fight ISIS when FSA was one of the largest suppliers of weapons and fighters to ISIS, right? So we know that ultimately FSA just started giving these weapons and fighters over to ISIS, which created the, the ability to, of the growth that they had. So was this really where the arming of the extremists in Syria began, or, or was that the official claim that we're told? And, you know, feel free to dive into the Exactly. I, yeah, in mid-2013, we started to see the open campaign for it, which kind of justified, in some sense, the, oh, well, okay, uh, Barack Obama will sign the on the dotted line and give the CIA the green light to do this, which was then reported, you know, several months or a couple of years later. Um, but... Um, a number of sources, for example, Mint Press News was writing about uh, that, the arming that was taking place at least since 2012. Um, it's been reported that ever since 2012, eight European countries have been selling large shipments of small arms to Saudi Arabia, the total of which has surpassed 1 billion euros. Most of these weapons end up in terrorist hands in Syria. At the same time, the U.S. has been supervising these deliveries through its SOCOM operatives, since this operations command is charged with overseeing U.S. operations overseas. American special forces have been shipping these weapons from Bulgaria to Romania to Turkish and Jordanian, Jordanian, Jordanian reports. Uh, there are reports that SOCOM has paid at least $27 million to Bulgarian and $12 million, uh, Bulgaria, and $12 million to Serbia for small weapons in the period from 2014 to 2016. So uh, there was definitely uh, arming that was going on in 2012 through Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Um, specifically were funding a lot of the arms sales that were going on, but they were being supplied by NATO countries. Uh, it's been covered by global research and others. And, and as I say, that was 100%, that was part of Benghazi Gate. That was part of what that operation was about, was um, at least it has been alleged by three different sources that I was able to, to hone down. And people can look for this on my site. Um, I think it's posted under James Corbett blows the lid off of Benghazi Gate or something like that. Um, where there were three different sources at that time claiming that Ambassador Stevens was, it was a hit um, precisely because he was going to blow the whistle on the gun running that um, was going on, that the CIA annex a mile away was actively involved in um, to bring the shipments um, to Syria, ultimately through uh, Turkey, Jordan, uh, Pakistan, other places. Um, and I think, again, this ties into the, the sort of the bigger picture of the arms flows that were Again, people want to try to limit it down to one thing or one place or one player, or it's all Israel, it's all the U.S., it's all Saudi, or whatever. You know, they're, they're personal, personal bugaboo. Absolutely not. Again, these types of massive international coordinated efforts, these kinds of massive events, when we talk about a 9-11 or whatever, they never happen for one single reason, for one single player, because it benefits one person. It, it's because it benefits many people that many people will come together on various different actions. And that's exactly what we see happening here. And that's why I broke down in episode 295 of my podcast, I broke down at that time six players that were identifiably involved in this, um, which uh, I don't wanna get the, the list wrong off the top of my head, so let's go through it. Um, Israel, NATO, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the US. You can actively say they were all actively involved in weapons shipments and supplies and equipment and training to the terrorists. Um, from that point, at least 
2012. But again, as we know, the State Department was funding opposition groups in Syria since 2006, identifiably so. So at what point did that, did that funding start to become active arms, I think, weapons shipments? This is really the only question. Yeah, definitely. And, and we can, and basically into June in 2014, after that, the ISIS, as we ultimately look at them and know of them today, as you said, ISIS, ISIL, however you want to, the Islamic State, came onto the scene with, as we know now, and as you're pointing out very clearly, with direct training from U.S. and coalition special forces. It's just interesting people to understand that. <laughs> direct training from us to the group that we pretend we're fighting. And they, as you pointed out earlier, they marched back into Iraq and took Mosul and, and much of northern Iraq. Now, ISIS, of course, at this time, then just, just so happens to fall upon truckloads of U.S. tanks and Humvees and weapons supposedly left behind by the U.S. military, which caused them to rapidly grow. So your thought on that point in general, and you know, were the weapons left for ISIS or another blunder? Like, how do you see that working out? Yeah, I mean, I, again, uh, it's a question of interpreting motivations and, and what have you. But the long story short is that all of the weapons ended up in the hands of the radical Islamic extremists. Again, regardless of whether this was deliberately planned, okay, we're going to create this group called ISIS and we're going to give them the, these weapons and we're just going to leave them here in the desert kind of thing, or whether this happened because this is what happens when you have all of these weapons and funds and all of this stuff flowing into a region that is clearly chaotic in the first place, uh, again, does it ultimately make a difference? Um, and from the planner's perspective, you know, do you have to literally plan each and every one of these events or do they happen? And well, look, look at what happened. Now we got to go in even harder. Wow. It works for us, doesn't it? And that's, that's ultimately, I mean, that's where I come back to in so much of my my analysis of so many of these things is that, yes, you absolutely can say that, you know, this was planned and they, they planned to do this, but you don't have to. In so many cases, as long as they control the reaction to this, then anything that happens, they can capitalize on. Um, so that, oh, this horrible thing has happened. Well, that must mean we need more money and power. What's, what's the alternative? I mean, the criminals are running the government, so you need to give us more power in order to keep you guys safe. It's a protection racket, and that's exactly how it works. Anything that goes wrong is actually good for the people in charge. Yeah, most definitely. And it, what's interesting, a thought to, you know, again, it'd be open, just an open question to anybody who to look into it for themselves. But, you know, there, there's evidence that shows that the, I actually think a Saudi prince spoke out and openly kind of said that they had lost control of this entity. Right. And so we, we can wonder whether or not this is something that they've lost control over. Maybe that was the plan to make it think like they're not responsible anymore for what's happening. But like you said, we ultimately don't know. And it's either that they're the worst at what they're trying to do or they're creating it. Doesn't matter. Ultimately, this is their fault. And I think that's what it comes back to is their actions are directly responsible for this. And, and I wanted to point out, I found this very interesting and, and to this point about whether it's intentional and really comes back to correlation causation kind of discussion that in one of your videos, the one you mentioned, who is really behind ISIS, you showed a map of what the, at this time, uh, the Islamic State declared as its caliphate. You might remember the Iraq and Syria map. And I couldn't help but notice that looking back from the current situation today, that all the way back then when they originally declared this ISIS, the Islamic State Caliphate, it just so happens to be the exact location right now that the United States government is occupying in Syria. I just find that very relevant to point out. Now, Iraq, you could say, well, they're occupying Iraq entirely. So that's, you know, that part of the map, you could argue, might be that they just have all of it in the regard if, if we're looking at the U.S. through ISIS kind of idea. But you have to recognize that the map on Syria that you show 
that they claim is their caliphate right now is like exactly where the U.S. government and their SDF proxies are occupying Syria. I, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's coincidence? I think I know where you're going to go with it, but I find that just to be a hard thing to ignore. Well, I, I don't think that would even be denied by anyone on this side. It's because, well, that's where the bad guys are. So we have to go in and take that for the US of A and freedom lovers everywhere. So again, if you had a terrorist proxy force that you were arming and equipping and, and really puppeteering, and you wanted, say, this piece of the grand chessboard, you would just put your terrorist proxy force in that piece of the grand chessboard and then go in and take it. That's exactly how that works. And oh, look, that's exactly how that works time and time and time again. Oh, Iraq, we've illegally invaded and occupied. Well, uh, uh, well, the bad guys are here. Look, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And we'll make a PSYOP campaign to make them seem like they're important, even though they're not. And now we're stuck there forever. Oh, oops. Oh, well, you know. So again, this is exactly the, this, the logic of the situation. And it's not even one that would be denied by the State Department. It's like, yeah, that's where, that's where ISIS was. We had to go in and clear it of ISIS and you know, mission accomplished. But we got to stay there because otherwise these fighters will arise out of the sands of the desert just like they did before. So we have to stay there and vigilantly guard the poppy fields in Afghanistan or the oil in Syria and Iraq and elsewhere. I mean, it's, it's, it's nonsense, but it's, it's the fig leaf or the lithium in the mountains, or the cobalt, yeah. you know, <laughs> all the different resources. But and this brings us right back to the, the final point here, and the, and the idea of what we're looking at today. And I mean, it's important for people to recognize that the location I'm talking about, by and large, you know, the Thyrazor-rich area, as well as just the rest of the area we're talking about, is all, you know, wheat fields and all the resources for Syria. But it's important to recognize that, you know, they claim, you know, ISIS had control of this territory. And if we are looking at this the way we're talking about it today, you could just claim that that same entity coalition, U.S., whatever, had control of the same area, it's important to recognize that time ISIS was selling most of that stolen oil to Turkey. No one seemed to care about that then. They also sold a bunch of oil made in, you know, for gold, and then the U.S. took that gold off the hands of ISIS. I mean, all these things are just right. kind of casually ignored, and it's important to, say, to see now that this is where the U.S. You know, Kurds took it. Now the U.S. is back, and it's all just this kind of changing of their proxies and this control. Yeah. Now, Go ahead. And, and part of this, part of this, again, you can easily um, analogize this to the mafia and the way it works. But part of this is that everyone has the blackmail goods on everyone else in this kind of Mexican standoff that goes on. So that when Turkey and Erdogan are not playing ball and are, you know, do we really want them in NATO? Then you can suddenly go, oh, uh, look, they were buying the oil from ISIS. Oh, who knew? all along oh well okay well then they're a bad guy now and it's always that thing and that's why i mean the 28 pages and all of that is important it's an important part of the 9-11 puzzle but it's always been since the time that they wrote about it in the uh, the congressional investigation back in 2002 and then immediately classified the 28 pages and then it was blasted on every news network in the world including cbc in canada i remember seeing the reports of it at the time there was a classified 28 pages in this report about an unnamed foreign entity that had some kind of connection to the 9-11 attacks, and everyone knows it's Saudi Arabia. I mean, they were reporting it on the news at that time. It's the little piece of blackmail that's inserted in there so that when and if the time comes, oh, Saudi Arabia is thinking of selling part of Aramco directly to China? Oh, oh, I think we might let some people sue you for 9-11. You sure you want to go there? Oh, you don't want to start pricing oil in anything but dollars, do you? There's, there's these pesky 20 just, oh, oops, they got declassified. Okay. It's, it's, an, it's a racket. It's a game. And exactly, we see that in Syria with Turkey, 
You know, a turkey, uh, you, what, what do you want to buy from Russia? Oh, no, okay, you were buying oil from ISIS. We're going to start talking about that. And um, again, everyone knows it's going on all along. It's just a question of when they drag it out in order to use against their enemies. And it's interesting. It brings to mind the idea. And this is why we see things like, well, you know, you, myself, everyone in the independent media discussing the Epstein story for a decade. And suddenly it's bombshell. Things that we've never heard before that we've all been screaming about for a decade. You know, so it's like it makes you wonder what happened to cause that. You know, it's, it's, re yeah. it's the reason that they come out. With and this. I'm going back in my mind through all the things, the NSA uh, wiretapping and things. I was talking about Stellar Wind back in 2009. Um, but Suddenly in 2013, Snowden comes out and suddenly, who's ever heard of any of this? Wow, yeah. The crazy conspiracy theorists were completely right, but they're still crazy conspiracy theorists and we're still completely right about everything, even though they were right and we were wrong, but it doesn't matter. Jedi mind trick, don't think about that. Just follow us. <laughs> and, your, and your site's a great place for that, actually. For how long you've been doing this to go back and actually, you know, chronologically look at how you called these things and they come up later and you know, like you said, oh, we had no idea. You know, it, it's just it's just frustrating. And again, just you know, back to this serious situation where it's so obvious. Uh, we every, just what we went over today, and as you mentioned earlier, there's so much more that could get into, but that we can see the lies right in front of us. We watched as they lied to us. We watch as they're you know working with the very group that they pretend that they're fighting with. And I was going to say a moment ago, Daniel McAdams had an amazing quote about this in, a, in an interview from so many years back. He said, "Quote: The U.S. sanctions anything that moves." So why didn't they sanction the banks that were helping to finance these ISIS deals with oil, right? Why didn't they sanction the oil companies that were participating in the ISIS deals, right? I think we know the answer to that. And I think this all has to come together to at the very least show us, like you and I are touching on, that we don't know exactly all the ins and outs, but we know that we're being lied to. We know that they're lying to us about who they're working with and why they're doing it. And that should make us question damn near everything we're looking at today. And so, you know, really at the end of the day, how do you see what Trump is doing right this moment, stealing all the oil and how they're occupying it, you know, and really tying in with this. Do you feel that that's just the next evolution of this agenda and that's always been what they've been doing? Like we're seeing Trump rip off the mask today or is it because we've been fighting back and we're screwing up their operation? You know, what, what do you think is the next step for them in this whole play? Yeah, clearly I think the general status quo modus operandi is to always have that fig leaf and to always cover, it. it's, it's there and if you, Look at it, you see and you know what's going on, but let's not look at it too closely. And certainly let's never come out and actually state it. Never come out and actually say, yes, we're there, we're gonna take the oil, it's ours now. You would never come out and say that. That's not how this game is played. Um, it's still the same game. It's just actually calling it for what it is. So I think that's the only difference is that this administration is not using the PR fig leaves and what have you. They're just saying it plainly. Uh, just in case anyone, any of the good old boys in the good old boy network didn't get the message. No, we're still there. We're still taking the oil. Don't worry. We're not, we're not actually leaving Syria. You guys didn't think that was actually anything more than campaign rhetoric, did you? No, we're, we're there. It's ours. And, uh, you know, this is our coming out and openly, flatly stating what everyone already knew all along anyway. Oh, and we're going to stay in all top two for Israel, right? Because that's what they asked us to. So, you know, <laughs> we got to maintain all of it for all of the same agendas. You're totally right. Just appeasing all the people they know would come over the top and all the problems. It's, it's interesting that we can see this and it can be so obvious. It's just a you know, casual discussion about the information. It's not that hard to find. And we can see pretty damn plainly that ISIS is not what we think they are. Neither is Al-Qaeda. Neither is basically, as I'm coming to find out today, anything. <laughs> what isn't fake today, really? So that's where we always come back to. So thank you for joining us. Incidentally, I just want to give you a hat tip for that recent uh, clip from the, uh, the daily wrap-up that you did about we can't trust anything, even breathalyzers. Yeah. 
literally all, everything that we take for granted. It turns out, no, actually, that's pseudoscience. Wow, surprise, surprise. Uh, you know, and that and that's I, I, when I referenced your that, that video you did about the the crime lab stuff. It that's people still fight back. I will I'll, I'll reference this and they'll say, no way, that can't be. You know, it's it's just a testament to how strong the propaganda, the social engineering is, which is why we do what we do, right? So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for being here. Is there anything else you'd like to drop for, you know, on that discussion or any other for everyone that's out there watching right now? Uh, I just like people to check into the, as you always say, check into these sources that, that we're citing here. I'll put all the links in the show notes. And I, I just, uh, the more people look into this for themselves, the more they can not continue to delude themselves about these issues. And again, whatever conclusion you come to or whatever inferences you draw from this or that piece of information, at any rate, the story that we're being fed is not the real story. And when you really start to see that for yourself, when you start to see how stupid they think you are by feeding you nonsense day after day, giving you a little, little bit of truth here and there, but then just moving on as if it never happened, and they think you are idiot simpleton children who can't look in, can't piece two pieces of information together for yourself. And every day that people continue to go along with and buy into this agenda is a day that proves them right about that idiot simpleton. So I would, I, my whole point of everything I do is just to shake, shake people out of that complacency and just to get them to look at this information for themselves. Because I don't think any person can make any of this cohere in their mind in any other way than, oh, this is all a lie. And I think that's at least the first step. And uh, once you're ready to go beyond that first step, I hope people will go to CorbettReport.com and type solutions into my search bar because I've done dozens and dozens and dozens of videos and podcasts and interviews and articles on that subject about what we can actually do about trying to escape the, uh, the bars of this cage that we've been put in. Well, there you go. For everyone that's watching my videos every day and going, that's great, Ryan. Now what are we going to do about it? Well, there's your answer. Go to James Corbett's site, <laughs> look up for the solutions that he's posting. But you're, the, it's important for us to take that point you said there, that they, they bank on your apathy. They bank on our, our, our stupidity, our, our willingness to not look into something, to just go, eh, I'm just going to take their word for it, right? They assume that you're that stupid. So prove them wrong, as James is saying. Show them that you're not that person, that we're not going to be those people. So thank you for being here. And, and, and I want to end with a quote that was from J uh, Ben Swan's documentary about all this that I thought was just kind of perfect end for this, where he says, ISIS is not the product of American inaction as the mainstream media always want you to believe, especially as they use that to justify more wars today. But in reality, ISIS is the product of direct action by the US government. And I think that's exactly what we got to today. So thank you for being here. And as always, everybody out there, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. Anyway, welcome to the State Department. I think we have some interns in the back. Welcome. Uh, good to see you in this uh, exercise and transparency in democracy. <laughs> is that what it is? 